Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthro UX podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Sarah Hefney, who is a senior product researcher at Hotjar. So, Sarah, thanks for coming on today. Really looking forward to chatting with you. Uh, would you mind by telling everybody how you came into anthropology? Yeah. Hi, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Um, I ended up in anthropology very serendipitously. Um, I originally did my I did my undergraduate degree in Middle Eastern studies or what the university, their variation of what Middle Eastern studies was. And um, I had originally intended on going to law school. So out of college, I got a job working as um, a kind of an assistant to a law a lawyer in a private boutique law firm in Washington, D.C. And the kind of original game plan was to study for the LSAT, apply to law school, et cetera. And um, working in a law firm, I quickly realized that I did not want to, in fact, become a lawyer. And I honestly didn't have um, a, a backup plan. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, I kind of, I ended up going into anthropology because I decided to go back to school. And at the time, this was in 2012. So um, as I told you, my background is in Middle Eastern studies. And uh, the context at the time was that the um, the Arab Spring, as it was called then, um, was kind of in full swing. There were revolutions happening across the region. The conflict in Syria was really um, escalating. And so that was kind of dominating the news of the region. And I was really interested and wanted to figure out a way how I could study it. And my um, my mentor from undergrad, who has since passed on, Walter Andrews, asked me if I'd ever considered anthropology. And I was very honest when I said no. Uh, I had taken one anthropology class when I was an undergrad, and I remember really enjoying it, but it really never occurred to me that it would be um, something that I could be interested in. So I started looking into anthropology graduate school programs and quickly realized that if I didn't want to take on massive amounts of student loans, I had to get into a funded PhD program because uh, all of the MA programs, you basically had to pay and I did not want to take on any student debt. So basically narrowed down all of the uh, programs that I was interested in. My partner at the time was applying to medical school. And so we were kind of syncing up potential location schools that would work for us. And um, I applied with this sort of vague idea of wanting to study the Middle East and uh, sociocultural anthropology and um, ended up going to Brown. Uh, and I wouldn't say I recommend getting a PhD because you aren't sure what else to do. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how I fell into it. And there was definitely a learning curve at the beginning. A lot of the folks in my cohort at the time had done undergraduate or master's degrees in anthropology. So they were much more familiar with the pedagogy, the kind of, um, you know, the main character, so to speak, in the 
uh, anthropology world and it was all new to me. So the first couple of years were definitely um, a learning curve. And I hadn't thought past the PhD. I didn't really consider academia as a viable option because, again, the context for academia was at the time and is now, if not even worse, just kind of very precarious and the chances of getting a job were slim to none. So I had never really considered that as a serious option, but it was kind of one of those, like, I'll cross the bridge when I come to it kind of scenarios. Um, But that was how I initially got into anthropology as a discipline. So at Brown, uh, was UX discussed? No, not at all. Uh, Any kind of anthropology, anything outside of the academy was not really discussed at all. So then how did you stumble across the concept? The same way I stumbled across anthropology very serendipitously. Um, I had uh, finished my my years of fieldwork and I was writing up my dissertation. Um, at the time, I had moved back to Seattle, which is where I am from. Um, my partner had started work in Seattle and so we moved back to Seattle. And uh, a woman who had graduated from Brown in anthropology a couple of years ahead of me knew that I was moving and she wrote to me, she was working at Microsoft at the time in UX research and said, hey, um, I know a team that's looking for a UX researcher, would you be interested? And it was honestly not something I really considered. It's not something I had heard of before. So I wrote back to her and I said, you know, I'm happy to think about it, but I don't have any experience. I wouldn't really know what I'd be getting myself into. And she reassured me that it would be fine. You know, she found herself in a a similar scenario when she started working, no previous experience. So I had sent over my my, uh, resume, which was completely, I don't even know how it made it past the the screener because it was not in any way a kind of tech-oriented resume, very academic. Um, And I got very lucky in that the team I ended up being hired to join was a team full of researchers, three of whom had PhDs in various social sciences. And so they created a very soft landing space for me for my first UX role. Um, But like I said, really didn't have a plan. And it was very um, kind of a stroke of luck and good timing that I found myself in my first role. And so I know you just said that they created a soft landing, but tell us a little bit more about that first experience. Um, I mean, presumably, you know, you were learning all the methods sort of on the job. Yeah, it was definitely a learn-as-you-go experience. And uh, in hindsight, I'm glad it was. I know a lot of UX folks or people who are in academia who are looking to to maybe make this switch into UX are wondering, you know, do I have to take a course? Should I, you know, sign up for a boot camp? And based on my my experience uh, as an anthropologist, especially if you're going into qualitative uh, UX research, it really is less about the skill set and developing um, the skill set so much as learning the language. And for me, the biggest learning curve was less methodological and much more linguistic. So understanding, um, you know, being able to translate what stakeholders were asking of me into, I guess, anthro speak, so to speak, and then the other way around after, you know, doing my research and um, doing my analysis and wanting to present it, how figuring out how to present my findings in a way that was legible to people like uh, product managers and designers. I think I saw on LinkedIn, correct me if I'm wrong, but was uh, was that a contract role? Yeah. Yeah. So that was a contract role. 
And how do you feel about that? You know, would you recommend that having had that experience? And I appreciate that it would be different everywhere, and there's no one, you know, one perfect answer here. But you, I think we're seeing more of those. Uh, I would say, by and large, you're seeing a lot of kind of uh, foot in the door, kind of, you know, even like one year contracts. Um, and so, would you, you, you had a good experience doing that as a way to get in? Yeah, you know, I think. Uh especially given my personal situation, which was that I hadn't really sought out to be, go into UX research. It kind of fell into my lap. That was a really low risk, um, low commitment way of saying, you know, I'll try it out. If it doesn't work, I have no commitment to these folks. Um, and so for me, it worked out really well. And I imagine given the current economic climate, you know, we're seeing lots of layoffs. I think contract roles are not something that's going to be going away anytime soon. And I do think it's a great option for people a, to get in there, the, the foot in the door, as you had mentioned, but also to see if this is really a career that they want to get um, invested into, because I didn't know anything about what I was getting into. And it luckily, it worked out for me as a career option. But, you know, I also know folks who have gotten into UX research and they're just kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. And interviews, when you're interviewing, especially, at, you know, like really big tech companies, it's a very arduous a time intensive process. And so to be able to, um, I think contracting is another way, again, to get that experience to see if it works for you without going through having to jump through all of those really intense hurdles of going through, you know, a full time hiring process. So, um, so you, you do that. And obviously, Microsoft's a pretty good place to get started. You know, I can't, can't go wrong there. Um, so, but you decide then to move on. And so why did you move to the bank? You know, what we, or not necessarily why, but like, you know, what were you, what was going through your mind at that time? Where were you looking to kind of grow in? Yeah, well, I think this is the first time that I, um, you know, made a conscious choice to do something as opposed to things sort of falling, falling in my lap and saying, hey, why not? Um, so I had a great experience at Microsoft and what had actually happened was, um, and this will vary from company to company, but usually what happens when you're in a contract role is that you can only work as a contractor at that company for a certain period of time, because then they start to get into legal fuzziness of you've been here for a really long time. You're doing the same work as a full-time employee. R really? Why are, why, why is this company working with contractors? Right? So, um, Microsoft had a certain deadline. You could be a contractor for X amount of time, and then you either had to convert to a full-time role or you had to, um, leave. So at, I was approaching that point and what had happened, obviously, um, happened to all of us COVID. So I had started in office and then moved to remote when COVID hit. So I was working remotely at the time and, um, lots of personal changes as lots of people experienced during COVID, but I ended up wanting to relocate back to Italy, which is where I am currently. And, uh, working at Microsoft. Um, so what I ended up doing was interviewing full for a full-time position in, with a team that was very close to the team that I had worked with as a contractor. And I ended up getting the job offer from Microsoft. But while I was doing that process, I had also applied elsewhere and I was particularly looking at remote roles. And I also received this offer from Zappo and Zappo is a fully remote company. They've always been a fully remote company. So COVID didn't, you know, the ways of working didn't get impacted so much uh, for them because they were already working remotely. And, um, what happened was I was kind of presented with these offers and what really sealed the deal for me was 
talking to the hiring manager at Microsoft and understanding if there was a possibility to work remotely. And he said, you know, we're trying to be more flexible about it in terms of like working in the US, but because of legal restrictions, tax implications, all of that, we can't hire somebody who's going to be based uh, outside of the US. And so that was essentially um, the what made the decision for me was I needed to be able to work from where I wanted to work. And um, the the job that I took at Zappo, the, that was the main deciding factor was they really were allowing me to work from wherever I wanted. You know, being a relatively new UXer who kind of goes right into remote, how did that work for you? Um, well, I will say I didn't, let's see, I'm trying to think about how much time I had actually spent in the office. So I started in July and then by March we were working fully remotely. So um, that's eight months in the office and it was fine. Um, but, you know, as especially, um, especially as an anthropologist, like I was very used to working in a solitary environment. I was very used to having flexibility in my work schedule when I was doing field work. You know, you have interviews and you're doing your observation at all hours of the day. And so the idea of having a fixed schedule was not something that I mean, I'm sure I could have adapted to it, but it was not something that I was um, that came easily to me. And so um, that was the other thing that gave me that was wonderful about remote working was not only the the commute and not having to be in the office, because that part was not as much of a, a big deal to me. But the idea that working remotely allows you to really create your own schedule, if done right, I should caveat because there are a lot of people for whom remote working ends up being exactly like working in an office. You're just doing it at your house. Um, but done well, I think it gives you that flexibility. And so, you know, I can go to the gym in the middle of the day. I can go to, you know, run errands, um, and really just be a, it just feels like a much more adult way of working. Like I'm responsible for managing my time and my workload and, my coworkers and my manager trust me to do that. And so there's no reason why I need to be in the same place as all of them. Yeah. And I think it's a really uh, great point about how the reality is, is, you know, our research often was working around other schedules. So in a sense, we were already doing that, you know, uh, that's again, something that hasn't quite come up yet, or at least framed that way, but, um, but well taken. So um, the, how about though the aspect of actually conducting the research, not remotely, not in the sense of project management and, and how you manage your time, but um, you know, presumably some of the research you would have done for your PhD was in person, and obviously, you know, being remote is less less embodied, less contextual. So, how have you sort of responded to that, and any creative sort of workarounds that you've come up with? Yeah, so I I kind of thought it. Uh, in two different ways. The first was that I was already um, changing context so much by getting into UX research. So, you know, the idea of how uh, different the timelines are, the expectations in terms of outputs, uh, you know, the idea of good enough research, which I'm sure gets thrown around with a lot of folks that you've talked to. So that that was already enough of a change for me. So like adding the remote work into it, it was just kind of like part and parcel of working in a completely different environment. Um, and, and it does require some creativity, but frankly, one of the things I really like about remote work, and this is kind of my anthropological take on it is the, 
diversity it allows for in terms of participants and who you're able to speak with. You know, when I was at Microsoft, we had a lab and we invited people to come in and we had, you know, you're the two-way mirror, they're sitting on one side and you're sitting there taking notes, watching them, um, which was great, but it was only the people that were in, you know, the immediate Seattle area who were able to take time out of their day to come. And so that really restricted the demographics that you were able to access. And, and what I find with remote work is now I'm able to speak with people and conduct research with folks all around the world. And I think, um, while that requires a, a bit more intentionality in terms of how you are trying to replicate a lot of those intangibles in research, like rapport building and, and nonverbal um, responses and that kind of thing, I think the overall outcome is that it's better for the discipline. Again, now we move on to Hotjar relatively recently, and you title there being senior product researcher. You know, there's obviously this debate Bait, uh, that happens online about all these different titles and, you know, are they the same? Are they different? So I, I appreciate you're newer there, but, you know, just for the record, have you seen anything different about it? Is, is the company approaching in a different way or do you just now, you know, would you just say that broadly it's UX? Um, you know, I think the short answer is broadly it's UX. Um, part of the naming conventions, you know, uh, Part of it is due to just kind of legacy naming. You know, Microsoft calls their researchers design researchers. Why? Because at some point that's what they decided and they've just kind of stuck with it. Um, UX research, that shows up. You know, it's good for the algorithm. It's easy for recruiters when they're looking for people and when people are looking for jobs. Um, I would say, I mean, while I think it all kind of falls under that umbrella, one of the things, if we're going to get like very um, kind of linguistically analytical about titles and roles. Um, one of the things that I like about calling myself a product researcher is that it gives a much more holistic um, expectation about what my role is. And I think this is one of the challenges that a lot of UX researchers face is that, especially if your role is design researcher, is that you're very closely linked to designers, which is fair. I mean, you know, some of my closest stakeholders are designers and we work, we work very closely together, but that's not it's kind of limiting to assume that that is the work of the researchers to facilitate design or validate design decisions. Uh, when if you are lucky to be in a company that has a high enough UX maturity, the role of the UX researcher, the scope of the UX researcher or product researcher or whatever you want to call it, goes so much further beyond simply working with design. And so one of the things I like about calling myself a product researcher is that I think it points to the fact that research touches all areas of the product, not just simply design. And before they are users, quote unquote, you know, and, you know, right. And, and, uh, really the whole customer journey in, in some sense, which there again, there's like this sort of overlap with CX and other other such terms that get thrown about, but we, we don't need to go too deep into that. But yeah, I'm with you. I I sort of appreciate the the more global perspective. And so have you already had the opportunity, you know, to kind of get into some of that beyond just, you know, the sort of user aspect of, of the product? Yeah. And, you know, this is actually one of the things that I really love about Hotjar. Um, despite the fact that I've joined very recently, one of the things that really appealed to me, um, especially during the interview process when I was considering whether or not it would be the right role for me, is that one, research is is a given. The importance and value of research is a given. And, and that I don't think can really be 
overstated. Um, that is to say, the value of having a team um, and the value of having an org that just implicitly understands the value of research is extremely rare um, from what I've seen. And two, makes your job so much easier and opens up possibilities for you to expand your role in so many ways. Because I've, I hear from so many of my research colleagues in different companies, and this is really across industry, across company size, um, how much effort they have to put in just to get people on board with the idea that research can be valuable, right? And so the fact that that is not something that I have to worry about in my current role already makes my life so much easier. Um, and because of that, research um, designers, for example, take a very active role in research. So my favorite thing perhaps about this role is that uh, designers are in charge of most of the tactical and evaluative research. So they're the ones who are doing the usability testing. And, you know, that opens up a whole conversation about the democratization of UX research. And I know that that's, a, you know, a really big debate that's going on within um, folks who are in UX research roles in industry. But that opens up space for me to really focus on strategic research that goes beyond design and really um, forces us to think about things at a high level and how research can impact um, business goals and and the questions and the problems that people are, are having at a much higher level in the company. You know, I think this raises the question, and I appreciate again that this depends on maturity of the organization, uh, but a lot of younger anthropologists are coming in and thinking it's, you know, that it is very much kind of like in the evaluative area. Uh, I think many have a, a sense that there's more of the strategic kind of component out there, but you know, there's no real conception of teaching that today in, in higher ed. And, and quite frankly, you don't really see too much on that even on the internet. Um, so where I'm going with all this is, you know, I think anthropologists have much more to contribute beyond the sort of tactical or evaluative type work uh, that UX has largely become in many places. Um, so how would you, how might you help others think about how they can get into that role? You know, like, is there any resources that you've been using to figure out how you can apply your research skills to, to the more strategic initiatives? That's a, that's, I think that's kind of the question that every researcher has to confront at a certain point in their career, which is, you know, th that's not to say that there isn't value in getting experience in running different types of testing and understanding how that works, because there certainly is. And um, I, th I think to answer your question, what I would tell people who are getting into research, industry research or tech from academia specifically with an anthropological background is that we are unique, uniquely positioned as part of our training to be able to see the big picture, zoom way into the micro and then zoom back out again. And I think that is one of the things that makes anthropological training so well suited to these kinds of business research environments because we can take in those kind of higher level business, uh, business strategy questions see how that would filter down to a very specific product group or even feature and then zoom back out to see how the reactions or the way the user interacts with a particular feature 
contributes to this larger business question or strategic initiative. And because that's what anthropologists do, right? Like that is what we're experts in is like lots of context, zooming into one person, zooming back out. And um, I think that's the, that's the big value that anthropologists contribute to the research profession and industry. As to resources, I don't know if um, I have things off the bat around that particular question, but a lot of the, the resources that I really admire or the folks who write books that I really admire are people who are, uh, come from sociological or anthropological backgrounds and then have shifted to industry and have spent several years in the industry. So, um, you know, Erica Hall comes to mind. Sam Ladner uh, is one of my favorites. She writes very short, accessible books on mixed methods research and moving into industry from academia. So there are people out there who are doing this kind of work. And despite the fact that UX has become kind of a buzzword in the last few years, the idea of research or business research in companies is something that goes way, way back. So it's not a new thing. People have been doing this for a while. So, you know, on the topic of sharing information, it, you also do some speaking. Um, and so do you think that, you know, where's your stance on, you know, the role that anthropologists have in helping to, you know, increase our visibility as a discipline, but also kind of help to put forward a particular point of view, you know, on UX? I think this is um, a couple, twofold. The first is from a methodological perspective, how to do good research. And this is one of the things that I like to speak about with teams that either don't have a UX researcher or the UX researcher is, you know, can only go so far and they have more need for research than there is availability. Uh, which is if you're going to do research, regardless of the scale, do it right. And um, obviously, industry has a lot of time constraints and quality constraints in a way that are, is very different from academia. But I feel very strongly that you can do good, uh, you know, good research, even if you're on a time crunch, even if you have a lot of uh, various parameters that you have to adhere to. So that's kind of like one of the hills that I'm willing to die on. Um, and then the second being that, uh, and this ventures into the sort of cliche, which is around diversity. And, you know, the, the Margaret Mead quote about diversity and anthropology and the beauty of anthropology is like the classic, um, is like the classic example, but uh, really when you think about tech and for a very long time, who is a user has followed a very, very narrow understanding. And, and because so much of it was in person, like I said, and this points back to kind of like the lab example at Microsoft is you were getting feedback from a very specific and narrow subset of the population. And I think what anthropologists can really bring to the table is the, the business value, you know, so we're not just like fluffy, you know, diversity for the sake of diversity, but like actually bring business value by expanding your user base and expanding the diversity of the folks that you're talking to, whether that's talking about, you know, differently abled people for accessibility things, people from different cultural backgrounds. Um, and that's something that anthropologists are very comfortable with and I think can, um, help others, their coworkers around them, dip their toes into and slowly get used to over time. Appreciate all that input. And if you had to, is there, you know, considering, again, that you're 
yourself relatively early in the journey. Anything that you've learned you know, along the way over the past three jobs that you would offer to anybody else to help them get started? I think um, one of the things, we, I mean, we talked about contracting. I think your experience as a researcher can differ so much depending on the context that you find yourself in. So I would say that gaining different experiences in, in different sizes of companies and diff- different industries is uh, directly contributes to what you think of UX as a profession, because I think how people understand their experience as a UX researcher, we might be surprised by how different those experiences are. Um, and and this is sort of like the, I guess we're getting a little meta where if you're going to evaluate user researchers as the users, right, there are some common pain points that you see across UX research as a profession. And those are the things that we always lament to each other about. But uh, you know, a, an experience at a, at a gigantic, you know, like working at Google versus working at a small period app startup are going to be wildly different things. And you might think that you hate UX research. You might think, eh, it's maybe not for me because you haven't found a context in which you can do your best work and in which you feel comfortable. And so I would say as much as you can try out different experiences and contracting is a great way to do that. Um, But also recognize in yourself, like what kinds of contexts or what environments allow you to do your best work. Um, And for me, you know, that big, that decision to, to not take the role at Microsoft and to instead go to a remote role was very much an internal assessment for me about what in what circumstances are going to allow me to thrive as a re- as a researcher and continue um, to feel motivated and excited about going to work on a regular basis. And you won't know that about yourself unless you're exposed to different kinds of work experiences. Very well said. And so um, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you to learn more about your work or to kind of hear more of your perspective, where would be a good place for them to reach out? Yeah, sure. I'm very opinionated. I have lots of opinions. So if you want to hear more of my opinions, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, which is the kind of conventional way. uh, Or you can reach out to me uh, via my website, which is sarahhefney.com. And I have a contact form there. I feel very strongly about talking to folks who are in academia. Um, That's the other hill I would die on, which is that, you know, Academia, you know, anthropology to UX is not necessarily a given. Um, There are other industry, non-academic opportunities that are great for anthropologists, but it's really important to me that folks in academia at least know of UX as a potential option. And so if you have questions about that, if you're not sure whether or not it's right for you, if you just want to know what a day in the life looks like, I'm always happy to chat. Wonderful. Well, thanks for that. And Sarah, thanks for taking the time. Of course, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.